This episode of A Second Language features a graphic description of a lynching. Please listen with discretion. On one of my trips to Little Rock, friend Kevin Hefner and I had supper with another longtime friend, recently retired Arkansas Circuit Court Judge Wendell Griffin. The judge was about to leave town to give a lecture at Wake Forest Divinity School, but I wanted to see him and pick his brain about Second Baptist, race, religion, and more. Our booth conversation at the Mexican Grill turned to the 1927 Little Rock lynching and mutilation of John Carter and how the white mob further terrorized the black community downtown. Went into a church and brought the pews out of the church to make the bonfire to throw his body, throw his body out. That is crazy. You didn't know about that, did you? No, I did not know that part of the history. Which is From Good Faith Media, this is the six-part narrative podcast, A Second Language, Episode 2, All of This Just Speaks. By the start of the 20th century, Second Baptist Church in downtown Little Rock had become a church for the state's movers and shakers. It was situated in the hub of state government, and thus positioned for political as well as religious infighting. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Jeff Davis was born in 1862 during the Civil War, and named for that other Jeff Davis, the President of the Confederacy. Arkansas's Jeff Davis was himself the son of a Baptist preacher. The younger Davis loved politics. He earned a law degree, moved to Little Rock, became a member of Second Baptist Church. In 1898, Jeff Davis became Attorney General of Arkansas. In 1900, he won the governorship. In 1901, he was chosen Vice President of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention. And Davis wasn't the only power broker in the congregation. In the pews sat a state Supreme Court Justice, a former state Attorney General, and a former Governor. That former Governor was named James Eagle. Eagle also happened to be the President of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, and beginning in 1902, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yes, that one. As an aside, nearly 50 years later, another Second Baptist Church member would become president of the Southern Baptist Convention. That story's coming. But back to 1902, and the point for now. Second Baptist Church, in fewer than 20 years, had become loaded with political and religious power. What it wasn't loaded with? Alcohol. Traditionally, Baptists didn't drink alcohol, at least not in front of each other or in public. Hence jokes like, how do you keep a Baptist from drinking all the beer at your party? Invite two of them. Or, what's the difference between a Baptist and a Catholic? A Catholic will say hello to you in a liquor store. Now, it seems that Jeff Davis had some issues, and one of them involved alcohol. Stories of his public drunkenness had circulated for some time, and public figures and platforms were increasingly denouncing his behavior. Davis, for his part, said his political enemies, both inside and outside Second Baptist, were out to get him. The fact is, Second Baptist Church formed a disciplinary committee and eventually released charges against Governor Davis, citing his public drunkenness and debauchery. And on May 29, 1902, 
Second Baptist kicked the governor off its membership roll. Jeff Davis's career wasn't exactly over. His previous church in Russellville welcomed him back into the fold. He ran for governor again in 1904. His opponent, Carol Wood, an Arkansas Supreme Court justice and member of Second Baptist Church. In fact, Justice Wood had been on the committee that kicked Davis out. Davis researchers note that his expulsion from Second Baptist, ostensibly over his drunkenness, also nudged the governor into opposing the temperance movement. He used the issue on the campaign trail. Davis told one group of voters, I want all you fellows who ever took a drink to vote for me, and all those who haven't may vote for Judge Wood. Davis said he might be a pint Baptist, but the members of Second were court Baptists. Arkansas archivist Brian Irby wrote that temperance voters may have been officially outraged by his behavior, but they would still vote for him. And they did. Jeff Davis beat Carol Wood and stayed in the governor's office. One more story about Davis, and this one's crucial. In October 1905, President Theodore Roosevelt visited Little Rock. Jeff Davis welcomed him publicly and gave a speech in front of thousands. Davis took the opportunity to talk, purposefully in front of Roosevelt, about how and when lynching was appropriate. It was a white supremacist publicity stunt, according to Davis's biographer, Reverend Clegg again, in a 2019 sermon. And in that speech, right in front of Theodore Roosevelt, Jeff Davis made a moral argument for lynchings as social control. It angered Roosevelt incredibly, and he refused to come back as long as Davis was our governor. But I tell you that story today to tell you that we kicked Jeff Davis out of this church because of the dissonance between his public drinking and his profession of faith. But we did not kick him out of this church because of the dissonance between his profession of faith and his public policy. We did not kick him out of this church because of his openly virulent racist views. It's just how it was in those days. I know it and you know it. It's just how it was. But can I ask you this morning what caused more hurt and pain? Jeff Davis's drinking or Jeff Davis's policies? And that's where we have work to do, brothers and sisters. And then Reverend Clegg says, We are the church of Brooks Hayes. But a little over a century ago, we were also the church of Jeff Davis. And we need to own that too. Brooks Hayes. You might remember in episode one that I mentioned Brooks Hayes. I played some audio of Hayes in the 1950s, talking about how churches and pulpits should work. So the church must never apply political or social or economic pressures to seal the lips of a preacher or a teacher. And that's fundamental and basic. What I didn't say then was that Hayes became the most famous member of Second Baptist Church, someone who counseled governors and presidents who occupied the world stage. The church even gives an annual Brooks Hayes Christian Citizenship Award. You'll learn more about the man in episode three. So when Reverend Clegg says, We are the church of Brooks Hayes. 
But a little over a century ago, we were also the Church of Jeff Davis. He is contrasting two church members. Now, Brooks Hayes' story isn't without its own complications, and we'll get to those. But right now, we need to stay with Jeff Davis, lynching, extrajudicial killing, and race. Because in 1927, a white mob in Little Rock lynched a black man named John Carter. This podcast, A Second Language, will be right back after this word from Christians Against Christian Nationalism. I'm Mitch Randall, CEO of Good Faith Media and a supporter of the Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign. Christian nationalism is a political ideology that seeks to merge Christian and American identities, distorting both the Christian faith and America's constitutional democracy. Christian leaders and others have long discussed the dangers of Christian nationalism, but in 2019, Christians Against Christian Nationalism was formed to call out Christian nationalism and the threat it poses to our faith and to our democracy. Visit the campaign at christiansagainstchristiannationalism.org. There you will find a statement providing a more accurate picture of how American Christians view Christian nationalism. You can read and sign the statement, get articles and books and podcasts on the topic, share the campaign across social media, and much more. Help us call out Christian nationalism. Visit ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. Welcome back to A Second Language from Good Faith Media. To begin understanding this part of our story, meet Kwame Abdul Bay, Little Rock native, graduate of its Central High School, founder with his wife Clarice of the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement. uh, What the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement does is uh, we uh, have been working for the last several years to uh, create opportunities where our Kansans can come together, sit at the table, uh, and uh, discuss uh, Arkansas's history uh, of racial terror lynchings. There are 493 confirmed and documented racial terror lynchings here in the state of Arkansas. Uh, And we know that uh, when there's 493 confirmed, we know that there are at least twice or three times as many that actually happen. So that's the work that we've uh, been doing, putting up memorial markers in conjunction with Uh, the Equal Justice Initiative out of Alabama. The other projects that we're doing that is connected with this uh, is uh, called Noose to Needle, uh, where we're connecting that history uh, to the present uh, uh, system of capital punishment uh, in America. And uh, we are uh, working to get faith leaders throughout the state of Arkansas all on the same page to come out in unison against the death penalty. Little Rock, population 200,000, is just not a big place. And no surprise, Abdul Bay knows Reverend Clegg. They move in many of the same circles. And since I have uh, known him, uh, I've seen how he has led his church uh, in uh, being at the forefront of uh, these community conversations uh, with uh, different congregations, uh, uh, different people 
uh, dealing with race and social justice. Abdul Bay has been dealing with race and social justice for a long time. The work is personal and directly related to our story. I was a nerd growing up. And I would, this one particular Saturday, I'm sitting and I'm reading old newspapers and I come across a story of what happened in 1927. And I immediately leave the uh, library and go to my grandmother's house and I ring her doorbell. And when she comes to the door, I just ask the question, who is Lonnie Dixon? Lonnie Dixon was a black teenager, 16 years old in April 1927, the year of the Great Flood. It devastated much of the state. Uh, a large part of the city was underwater uh, and uh, they were attempting uh, to mitigate that problem. And in the middle of that problem, several children came up missing. It wasn't just one child, it was several white children came up missing. Uh, and one of the children that came up missing, uh, her mutilated body was found uh, in the uh, First Presbyterian Church, which is right down the street uh, from Second Baptist Little Rock. The janitor at First Presbyterian, Frank Dixon, found and reported the body, which turned out to be that of Floella McDonald, a young white girl. Frank Dixon, he found the body in the bell tower. So since he found the body in the bell tower and he was a, a mulatto Negro, uh, he was immediately suspected. Uh, and his assistant, Lonnie Dixon, was also implicated along with three of uh, Lonnie's cousins. Police detained both Frank Dixon and his son, Lonnie. That flood already had everybody uh, pretty much off of their games and in hysteria. Then when you had a, a group of white children that came up missing as a result of the flood and they were thought to uh, all have drowned, that increased the hysteria. Then to see uh, Flo, uh, Floella McDonald's mutilated body in the bell tower, that was like the match that lit the, lit the whole fire. I interviewed one woman who had actually been at a campfire girls meeting at First Presbyterian the day Floella's body was found. This is writer and historian Stephanie Harp. I talked to her by Zoom. She now lives in Maine, but has family that goes back several generations in Arkansas. She has published and presented at length on these events from 1927. And when I talked to her, she was elderly, and she remembered everybody saying, oh, we got to find Floella. Let's go find Floella. Like all kinds, like the Boy Scouts were searching. Like everybody, there were search parties everywhere. So everybody was already at this heightened state of anxiety about her in addition to the flood. And then when they find her body, it was like, you know, an explosion of emotion. And so Lonnie, you know, got the whole, it was like a fulcrum that came to him, you know, that he got the brunt of like the focus of everybody's anxiety, essentially. Whether whether he was guilty or not, it all focused on him, you know, really, really fast and really intensely. Police transferred the Dixons out of Little Rock, which was inundated with water and white anger. And in the midst of all this, another incident, the lynching of John Carter, historian John Kirk, telling this disturbing story. In 1927, 
Carter was out, uh, right out in the rural west of Little Rock, beyond the city limits. But he was uh, apprehended for allegedly accosting two white women and summarily executed. And, you know, his uh, body was lynched from a telegraph pole and they shot 200 bullets into his dead body. And then a mob formed and uh, tied his body on the bonnet of a car and uh, drove him into downtown Little Rock. And then when they got him into downtown Little Rock, they took his body off the car and with a noose still around his neck, tied the other end of the rope to the back of the car and dragged his body around the city, particularly through the black neighborhoods as a kind of warning and intimidation to the black community. And by the time they reached 9th and Broadway, which is right at the heart of the black downtown area, uh, West 9th Street was the black business district at the time, uh, there was a mob of around a thousand people in the city who kind of followed this uh, ghoulish kind of procession. And uh, right in the heart of downtown on 9th and Broadway uh, was the Mosaic Templars building, which is one of the biggest fraternal organizations in the city. And opposite that was the um, largest church in the city, Bethel AME. And right on the intersection between the two, whites um, went into Bethel AME church, tore all the pews out of it, built a funeral pyre right in the middle of that intersection, set it on fire and threw Carter's body onto the flames. Um, accounts have hours later police officers directing the traffic on that corner with a charred arm of Carter's body. And uh, nobody was ever uh, indicted for that. Nobody ever brought to justice for that. My grandmother was a great storyteller and she was kind of the keeper of family history. And uh, I had always heard that there'd been a lynching that she remembered as a child. And I had also heard that her father was a deputy sheriff. And it wasn't until she died and I inherited um, her uh, several bi loose leaf binders of her writing. And then I came to one that I recognized at first. Oh yeah, this is about that lynching they told me it happened. That put two pieces together. That put together the fact that her father as a deputy sheriff was present at the lynching. And I had never made, nobody had ever explicitly made that connection for me before. And as soon as that happened, I dove in. I had already chosen to leave the South to move to Maine. And that just, it just spun me around that he had been, the word that she used was involved. And that was it, that was the only word. So that could mean any number of things. And so I started interviewing family members and I started doing all kinds of research, ended up going to grad school because of that. Um, made several trips to Little Rock and did oral histories with family members and elderly friends and, and, and all of that. So that's what, it, it just grabbed hold of me and I couldn't let it go. I find it hard to absorb the brutality of John Carter's lynching. It's not ancient history. We have grandmothers with memories and stories to tell. So much barbarity and so close to so much. Less than two miles away, a brand new building, Little Rock High School, eventually called Central. It was the largest and most expensive high school in the country, a mix of art deco and collegiate Gothic styles. Architects hailed the new structure as America's most beautiful high school. And even closer to where the white mob threw Carter's body on the flames, just six blocks away, 
stood Second Baptist Church downtown, and next to it, the Albert Pike Hotel, named for Brigadier General Albert Pike of the Confederate Army. It was then under construction as a jewel of Spanish Revival architecture. A million-dollar budget, ten stories, stained glass, grand piano, so much beauty, near a lynching. Back to the conversation with Kevin Hefner and Judge Wendell Griffin. All of this, all of this, just speaks of the issue of proximity. If you're the congregation that's proximate to where there has been a lynching, where there's been a racialized murder, and you stay there, how do you stay there without having to do some kind of processing through about what it means to be the church of white people in a place where a black person is lynching and black people around? Uh, how do you, how do you, what do you, what, what kind of identity do you develop? Uh, and how do you do it? About two weeks after the lynching of John Carter, young Lonnie Dixon was brought before a court in Little Rock for the murder of Floella McDonald. The Arkansas National Guard was called out to prevent another lynching. Stephanie Harp again, talking about Lonnie Dixon's two court-appointed attorneys. And they didn't even get the details of the case or, or map out a strategy or anything to, until two days before the trial. And they, they called no witnesses except for Lonnie himself, who then on the stand repudiated the various confessions he had made. Because he had confessed, conf you know, in quotes, confessed in when he was first arrested. And then he repudiated that the next day. And then on the stand, he maintained his innocence. There's enough inconsistencies and questions about the confession, what he told, supposedly what the police said he told them, that it's, it's just really suspicious. The jury was only out for seven minutes. And yeah. I mean, it was, it was a foregone conclusion, as I, you know, as I told you. One newspaper report simply referred to a brief deliberation after a speedy trial. Arkansas executed Lonnie Dixon by electrocution a few weeks later on June 24th, 1927, his 17th birthday. It's interesting, the stories that we tell and that we tell ourselves. This is my colleague, Starlet Thomas, who advised me on this project. She's a minister and podcaster. That's her in the archives, after poring over digital records for accounts of John Carter's lynching and Lonnie Dixon's execution. And with a click of a button, you can make that story visible or invisible. And you can write it down, which essentially is, is saying it out loud for the next generation of people or you can tell you can tell a group of people to be quiet about it and then we never hear another word about it that it could disappear just like that Wally Dixon has kind of gotten had gotten sort of forgotten in this whole story because it was passed down as John Carter killed Flawella McDonald which he did not Lonnie was you know 
identified and then executed as a minor. I mean, that was a lynching really too, in a whole different way. It was a legal lynching really, you know. Little Rock is not a big place. People don't feel far away and neither does the past. I interviewed Kwame Abdul Bay at the location of John Carter's lynching. There's now a historical marker there, thanks to the efforts of the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement. I talked to Abdul Bay along this now busy street next to an African-American cemetery called Haven's Rest, where his own grandmother is buried. We talked about the lynching, about race and religion, about Lonnie Dixon, about Abdul Bay's grandmother, Johnny Elizabeth Dixon Moorhead. I'm sitting and I'm reading old newspapers and I come across a story of what happened in 1927. And I immediately leave the uh, library and go to my grandmother's house and I ring her doorbell. And when she comes to the door, I just ask the question, who is Lonnie Dixon? And she again breaks down and starts crying and tells me to come in the house. And she tells me Lonnie Dixon is my older brother. Uh, And I'm like, well, what happened to him? And then she said that he was electrocuted. I'm like, electrocuted? Electrocuted for what? And then she tells me the story. He was falsely accused of uh, murdering Fluella McDonald. And uh, as a result of that, he was uh, uh, sentenced to the electric chair and he was uh, electrocuted. He still to this day is the youngest person in the state of Arkansas to ever uh, die by capital punishment. When you look at records of what white Baptists in Little Rock were talking about in the 1920s, you won't find much or any talk about the evils of lynching or other injustices. What you'll find is talk of temperance. When the Pulaski County Baptist Association held its annual meeting in October 1927 in Little Rock, I could find no mention of John Carter or Lonnie Dixon. No talk about lynching men or electrocuting teenagers but they had time for temperance and warning their people against the immoral dance and suggestive moving pictures. And they recommended, quote, that our churches take a positive stand against these insidious evils of the hour. In those days, a young man named Brooks Hayes sat in the pews of Second Baptist. Since 1925, He had been the main Sunday school teacher in one of the church's most popular classes. Here's Ray Higgins, a former pastor at Second Baptist. Brooks Hayes was the most prominent of those leaders in the church, and that's because he taught a men's Bible study on Sunday morning for decades. People from all over the community came to that, and then they went to worship at their own church. But they came, the men came to hear Brooks Hayes uh, teach the Bible. In 1927, Hayes was an assistant attorney general for the state, with degrees from the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville and the law school at George Washington University in D.C. I was deep into producing this story before I came across this fact. 
Hayes witnessed the electrocution of Lonnie Dixon. The memory would stay with him for the rest of his life. I saw a young black go to the electric chair, and, I'm, uh, and when I say I saw it, I was asked to do it, and it became apparently part of my official duty to witness the execution. Also, there was a mixed motive. I wanted to see to what extent that it was uh, a um, humane way of taking uh, life. Uh, I saw a, a black young man executed whose crime had been committed when he was only 16 years of age. I didn't sleep at night. I just uh, did something to me. Hayes later wrote that, after he witnessed Lonnie Dixon's execution, he began to, quote, formulate my conviction that capital punishment ought to be abolished altogether. Who was Brooks Hayes really? Hayes's contemporaries described him as a country lawyer with a lot of ambition. That ambition would take him to the United States Congress and back to Little Rock in one of the city's most perilous hours. That story in the third episode of A Second Language from Good Faith Media. You've been listening to A Second Language. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Cliff Vaughn of Good Faith Media. The executive producer is Mitch Randall. We hope you'll like, rate, and share the podcast. We are a nonprofit, and that really helps us out. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. Thanks to our interviewees, Kwame Abdul-Bay, Lanny Allenbaugh, Rebecca Cowling, Preston Clegg, Chris Ellis, Wendell Griffin, Stephanie Harp, Eric Higgins, Ray Higgins, John Kirk, Gene Levy, Jim and Gail Malik, Jenna Sullivan, and Sarah Tarek. Special thanks to my colleague, Starlet Thomas, who hosts the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media, and to Callie Chisholm for the artwork. And huge thanks to Kevin and Angie Hefner. Thanks to Lisa Spear and Taylor Lawson at the Washita Baptist University Archives, Taffy Hall at the Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives, Carolyn Wilson in the Special Collections Research Center at the William and Mary Libraries, and Cassidy Long in Special Collections at the University of Arkansas. Other material comes from the archives at NASA, the Library of Congress, and the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. Thanks to Jim Pfeiffer and Sandra Hubbard, as well as Billy and Mark Heflin. Thanks to Patrick Fleming and Debbie Huff, Marquis Hunt, Joe and Charlotte Jeffers, Connie New, David Rice, and everyone at the Bramble Market. Thanks also to the Community Bakery in downtown Little Rock. Our music comes from Pond 5. If you are interested in learning more history about Little Rock and Arkansas, visit the fabulous encyclopediaofarkansas.net, a project of the Central Arkansas Library System. Our podcast show notes will list other helpful resources. Check out our other podcasts from Good Faith Media, including our first narrative podcast, Brother Molly, about the life and work of theologian Molly T. Marshall. A Second Language, released in August 2023 from Good Faith Media. We thank you for listening.